and just kind of raise your hand. The history of the ancient Israelites is fascinating on its own merits. Even secular historians are intrigued by the story of this unique nation, so small, so universally resisted, and yet so mystifyingly resilient. Unbelieving historians aren't sure if they should see Israel as lucky or as unlucky or as a strange combination of both. It's just hard to know how to classify this people. But for those of us who have been born again by God's Spirit and baptized by trusting Jesus as our personal Savior, we reject the very notion of luck and of non-luck. We know that Israel's fortunes never turned on chance. Israel's history hinged on the sovereign purposes of Almighty God who chose them to be His distinct people. And so for us, Israel's history is all the more fascinating because her story reveals life-altering truths about the nature and the ways of the one true and living God. We love the nation of Israel because of, its, of the study that it is, of the uniqueness of that, that it is, but also because we can stand back and watch God at work. As believers among the nations, we are endowed with the privilege of studying this nation's history as a direct revelation of who God is and how He operates in this fallen world. And so we return to our journey through Ezra today, and I encourage you to make your way there to chapter 5 as we've come to that chapter, remembering in chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Ezra, the stunning return of the Israelites from captivity in Babylon to the promised land. From all appearances, Israel is soon to be extinct. Their nation was wrecked. Their temple was leveled. Their people were carted off to Babylon to intermarry with the pagans and soon to be forgotten. A footnote in the history books. But in an amazing turn of events. Babylon is conquered by Cyrus the Persian who applies a very different foreign policy. He was just a very good pagan, a very good polytheist. And he not only permits the Jews to return to their homeland, he commissions them to rebuild their temple and reestablish the worship of God because he wants that local God, Yahweh, to be on his side like all the other Persian gods, all the gods of the Babylonians. He wants every god on his side. So go back. Rebuild your temple. And pray to your God that I will have long life. He was no monotheist. He simply wanted all the gods of all the conquered lands to favor him. And he did this not just for the Jews. He did this for all the other conquered nations. This was his policy. So he proposes to rebuild their fallen temples and reinstitute local worship across the empire. So a remnant of Jews goes from Babylon back to the promised land. 
They rebuild the altar of sacrifice, and they rebuild God's temple on the holy hill in Jerusalem. Well, sort of, they build it. Chapter 3, the foundations of the temple are set in place, and they are celebrated. But as we go to, would go to the book of Haggai the prophet, we find that the project is stalled. For some 16 years, God's people do not really make any progress on this temple rebuilding project. And the cause is intimidation on the part of their enemies who resisted their efforts by constantly slandering them to the Persian kings. The prophet Haggai reveals also for another reason that God's people had grown selfish and distracted. They were very good about building their own homes and clearing out their own farm fields and raising their own food, but they'd forgotten about God's temple in the process. And Haggai takes them to task. He says, what are you doing? You're building your little kingdoms and you're forgetting about the kingdom of God. You think this is going to end well? Let's get back to the project at hand, the most important project at all. Let's get back to rebuilding the temple. This is why we're here, not because a pagan king brought us back, but because the king of kings brought us back. And he proclaims in very clear, pointed terms that Israel must change its ways. This is the historical setting as we come now to Ezra 5 and 6, a narrative that reveals vital truth about how God works in the lives of his people in a real world. Ezra chapter 5, we find back to the temple, its reconstruction resuming under the efforts of these prophets. Ezra 5 and verse 1, now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah the son of Iddo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. What did they prophesy? With direct, clear words, Haggai rebuked God's people for their selfishness and their lack of faith. You read Haggai the prophet, not hard to figure out what he's saying. He's right there in their face with direct confrontation. Zechariah, I despair sometimes of ever understanding what he's talking about. He, in a very different visionary, flowery language, sometimes almost strange scenes, he's calling the people to the very same response. And so these two unique prophets in tandem delivering the truth. But the key is that God stirs the hearts of his people to respond in faith. So verse 2 we read that Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor, the leader of the Israelites in the civil realm, and Jeshua, the priest of, Je of Jozadak in the priestly realm, they arise and they begin to rebuild the house of God. That is, not the two of them got together one afternoon, but they, as leaders of the nation, help the people begin to rebuild the temple that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So these two preachers are proclaiming the truth of God, seeking to encourage the people to do what God wants them to do. And they have the leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua working together. So the work is revived. God's temple will once again serve as a beacon of hope to the nations. Or will it? Verse 3. At the same time, Tetanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shephthar Bazanai, 
and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus. So they come to Jerusalem, they come up to the hill, they come up to the place where the temple is being rebuilt, and this is what they say. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this. What are the names of the men who are building this building? Beyond the river, remember, that's west of the Euphrates. West of Euphrates from Babylon all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. These officials come and they want names. I mean, that's intimidating. That's unnerving. Who gave you the right to be here? Who are you? What are you doing? They're checking it out and they have official power from the Persian Empire. From all we can determine, Tentani was simply, Tetani was simply doing his job. But as chapter 4 demonstrates, we looked at that last week, in wave after wave after wave, there is persecution, there is resistance. Israel's enemies say, stop, we don't want you to develop here. And so we have to understand on some level, likely someone called the cops on them, as it were. And so they come to the site and say, do you have the right to do this? Who are you guys? Let me get your names down. We're going to have to look into this situation. I've told this story in another context, but it, just, it works for me, and perhaps it'll help us just to think through how they must have felt in that moment. I remember just a, a vivid memory as a child, a young man going with my father in an area where he was seeking to start a church. And so we were going from house to house introducing ourselves about starting a church. That's a, that's a kind of frightening prospect to begin with as you're going from place to place and meeting with people and working through it. It was going well until a squad car pulled up. And out came the officer, and he talked to us respectfully, but he basically said these very same things. Who are you, and what are you doing? And do you have a right to do what you are doing? And he reasoned with us that we maybe lacked that right, although he had nothing to stand on, and we continued to do our work after he left, but, but I, I, I feel it, it, probably there's a sense of that same kind of feeling with the Israelites here. We're doing a good thing. We're listening to the preachers of God. We know God is in this. We know he's brought us here for this reason. And now here's somebody coming in and messing with it. What are you doing? And who are you? We're going to look into this matter. It had to be a very discouraging moment for the people of God. But... Verse 5, and here's the joy of it. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This indicates to us that Tetanai is probably just doing his job. He is careful not to stop the process, and let me tell you, as the courier takes off with the letter that he is going to send to the king, it takes a while to get there. During that period of time, the effort is not stopped in the providence of God. It continues forward. But a report will go from this site, this construction site, to Darius the Persian to the east, and then an answer will have to be returned. And during this whole time, the Israelites continue to build. Now, there's a bit of a risk there, isn't there? Because if it comes back from the king, you have to stop Everything they've accomplished will 
be lost, it would appear, but I think it seems to be also an act of faith. God has placed us here to build this temple. We're going to build this temple. And they keep going forward with it. There are two agendas here. There's the agenda of the kings of this earth, and there's the agenda of the king of heaven. And they build. They build with courage. Now, in verse 6, we read an ancient letter. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, that's his jurisdiction, and Shethar Bazanai, apparently his associate, and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, this is the letter they sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Peace, man, I guess, is something like that. Be it known to the king, and, and I would assume to, this is probably a summation of the letter. It's a very curt and direct statement. But he greets him and says, Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. Before we get to their reply to us, just real briefly, the huge stones is a difficult translation. It might mean polished stones. But the point is, this is a real live building, and it has timbers in it, which was a natural way for them, a typical way for them to build. There seems to be some indication that it helped with earthquakes uh, for buildings to survive in that region when there was an earthquake. But this is just a normal building project and a normal way for the king to talk about another god respectfully. Some people said he'd never call him the great god. Well, he talked about lots of gods that way. This was the Persian policy. But that work is going on, and Tetanai says, we must consider what's happening here, and I'm doing my job, and this is what they said when I confronted them. Verse 11. Here's their response. So he's quoting the Jews to the king of Persia. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. Now, starting off that way indicates something. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. We're not the servants of the God of Judea. We are the servants of the God of all the earth and of the heavens. I think there's something of, of real pluck in that. They're not being politically correct. They are speaking to him as the worshipers of the one true God. And they refer to a great king who once built there. And what, who is that? Of course, that's Solomon. It's an attempt to demonstrate the continuity of what they were doing with the past. They know the Persian policy is to rebuild the temples Babylon destroyed so as to gain the favor of conquered gods. They understand how the Persians think. They understand how the policy works. They do not hide, but they also use what is there for them. They don't hide their relationship to the one true God, 
but they used the policies of the day to build the temple. Verse 12. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. So there's going to be an obvious question here. What happened to the first temple? Why are you building a second one? Have you come in and conquered another people? Is this a call for discipline on the part of the Persian king? This is an amazing verse. It's really significant in the account. These Israelites recognize we have come from Babylon because God has disciplined us. Because we worshiped and served false gods, because we turned to the pagan gods of the nations, God in His fatherly discipline took down our nation and moved us to Babylon. This is not how the Jews who went into exile would have spoken. They continued to appeal to the gods of the land. They continued to despise the God of heaven. But these Jews have learned. It is clear that there has been success on the part of God's prophets to teach the Jews in captivity how to interpret their own history. We failed God. And that's why we went to Babylon. It says something else, doesn't it? Subtly, God is sovereign over the nations. Babylon did not subject God. God used Babylon to do His bidding. This could be taken really as offensive speech. Thankfully, Babylon's gone, and the Persians really don't think much of Babylon, and so they apparently don't, aren't concerned about it. But subtly it's saying that it's God who disciplined us. It's God who steered us to Babylon, even though he used the Babylonian king. It also says quite explicitly that our Heavenly Father exercises discipline so as to restore his people, not to end them to restore them. So Nebuchadnezzar destroyed our temple, destroyed the temple of the living God. And we have been taken off to Babylon, to Babylonia, to the region of Babylon. So big, bad, powerful Babylon is disciplined by God. And when that happens, she is exterminated. She's gone. The kingdom is history. But when little, lowly, weak Israel is disciplined, she is brought to a place of repentance and restored. Think on that. Contemplate that. This is our God, and this is how He works. God's people live to tell about the discipline. So verse 13, however, in the first year of Cyrus, we were disciplined in Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, verse 13, the king of Babylon, Cyrus the king, made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. It almost comes across like they're trying to use Cyrus as often as they can here. This was Cyrus the Persian, the father of your empire, who let us come back here. And gave a decree that we should build this house. We're simply doing what he said to do. 
And so, verse 14, the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazzar, a Persian official, whom he, Cyrus the king, the emperor, had made governor. And he, Cyrus, said to him, Sheshbazzar, take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. This is the gift that just kept on giving. It is unbelievable that Cyrus said this, but he did. It was their policy. And then, the Jews continue, this Sheshbazzar, verse 16, came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building And yet it is not yet finished, and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure in the matter. What the Jews claim is in keeping with what extant documents, existing documents we found archaeologically in perfect keeping with the Persian policy. They're not treating Israel in a unique way. This is the way they dealt with many of the peoples. But Israel's saying, look at your policy and look at the records of Cyrus the king and you will find we are law-abiding citizens who are acting in keeping with a decree from Cyrus, the father of your empire. Check out his archives. As we move to chapter 6, Darius' investigation and decision is revealed. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ekbatana, the citadel, that is in the province of Media, it's located in media, a scroll was found on which this was written. Now, Ekbatan, this interesting, is the summer capital of the Persian kings due to its more mild climate. It's undoubted, it's undoubtedly, or at least probably, they looked first in other places and other archives, but they come ultimately to the summer palace, and it appears that it's there where Cyrus issued this decree, and so there is a record kept there in Ekbatana, the summer residents of the Persian kings. And there they find this scroll. They unroll it, and this is what they read. If summary or in full, they read this, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth, breadth, not its breadth, it's, uh, its breadth, 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. There's some questions that we have of this text. I won't get into them in any great length. 
but it is certainly difficult to know what to make of these measurements, 60 by 60. It seems to be missing from our text the width. That measurement is not there. We have the height and the breadth, and 60 by 60 doesn't accord with the temple that we find and the measurements that we find of Solomon's temple. There's different answers to what the possibilities are here, but if you caught that, it certainly is a, a confusion. We're not sure what particularly to make of it. Uh, it may just be a, a lack of uh, copying in records. It may be the, ex, the outward uh, parameters of the building that the, the Persians will pay for. It's a little confusing to us, but again, we see the, the very typical construction of that day, and we see again these vessels. These vessels are brought from Jerusalem to Babylon, put back in the hands of the Jews, and brought back to be put in the temple. Not a temple that yet exists, but that's what its purpose was. Also, we read of the royal treasury here, which will be the means by which this building is supplied. That is, tax revenues from the province would be used. And so it's not just that Darius is just going to give them the money as such, but taxes from their province will be raised, and out of those taxes, money will come to pay for this project. Here now, then, is Darius's verdict. Think of the, how the Israelites would have responded as they heard this read in Jerusalem. Now, therefore... Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bazanai, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. What started then as a frightening, intimidating inspection resulted in a clear legal standing for God's people. Darius did not know what Cyrus had decreed, but he does now. And the Israelites are free to build. Imagine all the possibilities and what could have gone wrong. The document may not have been found in the archives for whatever reason. Or once found, Darius may have revoked the document and said, I'm rethinking this and I want to go a different direction. But we go back to that key phrase in chapter 5 and verse 5, God's eye was on them. And the evidence of that reality just continues as we pick up at verse 8. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full. And without delay, from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail. That they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it. 
and his house shall be made a dunghill. Just to be clear. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. These daily offerings prescribed for sacrifice at the temple are something that the Persian king understands. And people have, critics of Scripture said there's no way a Persian king would know about the sacrifices of the Israelites. Uh, last I checked, I think Darius had two ears, and he talked to the Israelites. It's very clear what happened there. He's not making these things up on his own. He is working with the Jews, as the Persians did commonly, to understand what the God of the territory believes. It's an amazing development because he doesn't believe what the Israelites believe about God. He's operating from his own worldview, from his own purposes. He's got his own political agenda here. But as he operates, he's bringing about exactly what God designs. You can't miss that in this passage. Leave them alone. Let them build. I'm not saying keep away in the sense of you can never see them or see the project, but don't hinder the work. So again, the reasons that Cyrus had and the reasons that Darius had for the rebuilding of the temple were all wrong. They were polytheists. They wanted to impress the local gods. Their only interest, the only skin in the game for them ultimately was that they might get more tax revenues and be blessed by the divine realm as they saw it. They were willing to give even some money in order to assure that protection. I think this, the, the, king, the kings of Persia, they just thought of the kings of Babylon. These people were idiots. You storm into these other places and you tear down their temples. What are you going to do but make the gods mad at you? These Persians were a lot sharper than that. We're going to honor the gods of the land. We're going to talk to the priests at the temples. We're going to put the temples right back where they were, right on the same foundations, and we're going to honor whatever worship in that place existed before, and then we'll be blessed by all the gods. So by providing sacrifices for the temple in Jerusalem, Cyrus and Darius hoped that God would favor them with long and prosperous life, never knowing that God was using them for his purposes that were very, very different. Lucky? No, I think God's eye was focused on his people for good, and God can do this kind of thing. When the purposes of God are joined by the obedience of his people, hostile kings and godless kingdoms can actually be used to serve God's kingdom. What does this narrative teach us about the character and the purposes of God? There's so much here. Let me offer just three lines of thought over a few moments that we have together yet. 
What we can see clearly taught in this narrative is that God rules with absolute sovereignty over kings and kingdoms. He doesn't have his little kingdom among the others. This is not always the way that it seems. But the fledgling nation of Israel in Ezra exhorts us to realize God is always in control. Always, no matter what meets the eye. Now think of this in contrast, first temple and second temple. First temple, there is a military conquest of the promised land by the people of God. There is a military conquest of the hill in Jerusalem. With a powerful army, David maintains the borders of the land, and because of the weakness, providentially, of the major powers surrounding Israel, Solomon rules a nation at peace. He has a powerful army supplied with horses and chariots, supplied with the latest technologies, and nobody rivals him. Do you think there's a temple in Jerusalem? Absolutely. It is there, it is protected, and with military might, both nation and religion are united, and God's temple stands gloriously, proclaiming the truth that God is great and greatly to be praised. But in that ease, in that position of glory and majesty, Israel begins to turn from God and to worship the gods of the pagans. She turns to their sensual worship. She turns to their love for money. She turns to their emphasis on self and pleasure. And she ignores and forgets God. And so God, as a loving father, disciplines Israel before she becomes extinct and sends her into captivity, and there purifies her through the preaching of his prophets and through the discipline of that situation. He pulls out a remnant from that land of Babylon and brings them back under the Persian direction to this same hill. Now think of the project that's going on. Zerubbabel is a legitimate offspring of King David. And you might hope and think that perhaps this offspring of King David will rule from Jerusalem soon. You know what happens? Zerubbabel's really not all that important. And as the text continues, he just drops out of sight. All kinds of questions as to why that is. Nobody has any idea, but what we just need to deal with is the fact that Zerubbabel really wasn't all that important. He wasn't a great Davidic king ruling over Jerusalem. It is a radically new world. Who are the Israelites now? Well, let's look at their army. There isn't one. There's no king, and there's no army. And they, as a people, are in absolute subjection to a pagan overlord. This temple is being erected under radically different circumstances than the first. And we might ask, can God possibly establish His temple under these conditions? We learn in these chapters that God's hand is never weak and His eye never blind to His people when they look to Him for strength. This passage reminds us that God rules over kings and kingdoms. He can get His temple built however He wishes. 
The first temple with power. The second temple through secondary means of pagan kings and kingdoms. And this kingdom of Persia. But Israel's call in these radically different conditions is what? It is to trust God in willing obedience. It is not to call for the overthrow of Persia. Not now. That day was past. God teaches us then that His people can worship Him as Lord of heaven and earth wherever they live and whoever He has placed on the throne of whatever kingdom in which they find themselves. The kingdom of God rules supremely even when that is not obvious to us when we look at the powers of this world. And so as those who have inherited this tradition and this trust, we who are on this side of the cross and have embraced the Messiah, we who have come to trust in Jesus and to follow Him, we too are not directed in this world, above all, to overthrow governments and establish Christian nations. We're called to submit to the governing authorities as a means of submitting to God who elects kings and kingdoms. It's a different way of looking at it. Many nations will say the only way that we are in power is if we are in power over you. But God's people say we'll submit. We'll submit to any king, any kingdom. But we know that our king of heaven rules over all. Sometimes there's conflicts with the decrees of godless leaders. Times when we must choose to obey God rather than man. But when we do, how do we rebel against the governing authorities? We do so only because they are telling us to disobey God. We do so with respect and we do so accepting the consequences. We realize how they think. We understand their perspective. We know that it's not ours and so we go to jail without fighting. We use the laws, we stand upon them, we put them into use where possible, we get counsel, we get help. But if they put us in jail for disobeying them because we're obeying God, then we go to jail. We don't pick up arms. We do not fight tyranny with tyranny. We do not curse those who rebel against the rule of God with rebellion against the rule of man. We fight hatred with love, rebellion with submission, and hostility with peace. This is our Savior's call upon us. And we leave it with God how He wishes to elect kings and kingdoms to perform His bidding. We vote, but we don't worry about it. Just by quick and brief contrast, radical Islam reflects a very small God. Because their God can only win when He kills you. He can't win under any other conditions. Not true of all of Islam and their view, but in radical Islam this is a thing. It is just only overwhelm and kill. God, our God, the true God of heaven and earth, can will by means of armies, but he can also will and bring about his purposes by means of weakness. 
by an enslaved nation. By a peasant girl living in a despised town called Nazareth. By a humble, itinerant preacher who dies. And I think we as Americans in one of the most powerful nations on earth at this time must remember Ezra 5 and 6. And this message in Scripture, God is using our present government, our present government, to do His bidding. We may not always like what is happening. We might not like who He chooses, what they are doing with their power, how they are dishonoring God. But we can know that He uses all to do His bidding. And we must also remember that it is not by power alone that God works. May we never send the message then within this nation that we are losing. We're not losing. We're winning because God is winning. And in His unmitigated mercy, He has chosen to love us. And I have to move very quickly, but the discipline of God and His people is also a theme here. And Let me just summarize. But first temple to second temple reveals a precipitous fall from grace on Israel's part. The captivity was a severe discipline, but it was the discipline of a loving father. After repeated warnings against idolatry over many generations, God severely disciplines His people But we also learn that God has an immensely tender heart toward repentant people. His eye of grace rests on them. So we should know that our God is a God of discipline and we should respond to that, first of all, in in proper fear. But also with courage. Knowing that He loves to forgive. You may come today suffering the consequences of sin. You may say, it's hard, I hate it, I wish I could reverse history, I wish I could do things differently, but I am suffering the consequences of my own sinful choices. Aren't you encouraged? Please be encouraged to know that Jesus stands with open arms to forgive and to restore. God loves to do that. Don't mess with Him. It's cosmically unsafe. But if you are genuinely repentant of violating His will, please know this, God loves to restore sinners. And He would love to restore you. It is beautiful to be in His eye of grace. For His eye to be upon you is where you want to be. And we see thirdly the loyalty of God to His people's future. When God expects His people to do something for His glory, when He issues His word, He always supplies the means by which to accomplish His will. Knowing this about God, we are encouraged to step out in obedient faith and take risk for His kingdom with some level of expectation. As William Carey put it, expect 
great things from God, attempt great things for God. Why does he say that? Because that's the God we find in Scripture. We're probably much more tempted to be weak and retiring, to be safe and self-serving. Although we can certainly be presumptuous and demanding of God. But you remember Jesus' parable of the talents, three stewards given money while the master goes away. The guy who buries his talent, his money in the earth, and chooses the path of safety was not commended. He was rebuked. And Ezra 5 reminds us that God expects his people to labor for the glory of his name in a hostile world with full confidence that God has promised us a future. So we learn through the monarchy and we learn through the return of the Israelites from Babylon that Israel is the main actor on the stage of history and other nations full of pride and fury get most of the attention. But where are they? Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. There's no future. They are bit players in God's story. And once God has used their rebellion to advance His cause, they pass away. But Isaiah and Jeremiah record many lamentations for these nations, but no funeral dirge for Israel. Nations rise and fall, but God's chosen nation continues to get off the mat. Not because they are particularly good, but because they are God's chosen people. There's no better place in this world or the next than to be under the approving eye of God. For us who are, for those who are lost in sin, it means to repent of sin, to realize that you're separated from God, and to turn to His provision through Christ for salvation. For those of us who know Him, we are called to innovatively, courageously, dependently advance God's kingdom with faith that He rules from heaven's throne as King of kings and Lord of lords forever. And so we live and so we pray. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Let's hear a reading from Scripture at this time as we work our way into our baptism. Please stand with me. Before we look at the God's word, let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much for this word. We thank you for your faithfulness to your